Hello, everyone. This is the Boundless Book Club, the podcast that tracks down the books you never knew you needed in your life. From the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai to you, our listeners, welcome to the podcast and Ramadan Mubarak. You are here with me, Andrea, Annabelle, and me, Ahlam. And this is the Ramadan for Beginners episode. This is traditionally a time for reflection and spirituality. We'll be joined shortly by Buddhist monk Gilong Tupton, the author of A Monk's Guide to Happiness and his new book, Handbook for Hard Times, A Monk's Guide to Fearless Living. First, for the benefit of our international listeners, here are five quick facts that I wanted to tell you about Ramadan. So Ramadan is actually the ninth month of the Hijri calendar, which is a a lunar calendar and it's it starts so that we mark the beginning of Ramadan by spotting the first moon or the crescent of that month and it is 11 days earlier each year based on you know the uh, international calendar that we all use so that is number one number two we fast from sunrise to sunset and by fasting in islam we mean you can't drink anything not even water you can't eat anything at all and of course you know you can't misbehave so no lying no cheating no <laughs> any any of that bad stuff that you're not allowed anytime but especially not during ramadan <laughs> Uh, the third fact is that the Quran was actually revealed to Prophet Muhammad during Ramadan, uh, during the month of Ramadan. So this was a time when Prophet Muhammad was sitting, meditating in Hirak cave uh, in Mecca. And uh, he used to go there and he used to contemplate and sit in silence in the dark uh, a lot. And then one time he heard the angel Gabriel tell him the first words of the Quran, which is Iqra, and that means read. Uh, and then he he was startled and he was afraid and he said what am I, what shall i read and he says read and he says what shall i read and there's this back and forth and then he tells him the first lines of the quran um and so it's a very holy month for that reason for muslims all over the world it's the, the time when quran came down to the prophet and then it's of course a time of reflection it's a time of renewed energy it's a time of renewing your faith and uh, meditation and prayer and uh, reading of the Quran. Uh, it's, a, it's also a time for us to sort of renew our faith and, and spend time with family. So that's, it's, it's a really a sacred time for Muslims all over the world to take that time. Uh, it, it's sort of like stepping out of your normal life and going into a completely different mode and then coming back renewed for the rest of the year. And then finally, Ramadan is one of the five pillars of Islam that every Muslim must uh, abide by. So fasting Ramadan, that is. So the first one is the Shahada, which is you accept that there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. The five prayers a day, uh, the fasting of Ramadan, the offering zakat, which is giving 2.5% of your income and your savings to those who need it every year. And then the final one is the pilgrimage of Hajj, which every Muslim must do once in their lifetime if they're able. So these are the five main things that everybody should know about Ramadan. Now you both have lived in the UAE a long time. Did you know all of these things? I think I did, but I probably wouldn't be able to tell anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think particularly the Hajj one, 
I had spoken to uh, Soha in our office about because I I wondered if that was I was like you have to do that every year and she's like no it's just once once in a lifetime so I think there was some confusion about the timeline of that for me um and when that had to happen and how I find that yeah because there's hajj which is the big one and you you know there's there's a lot of rituals that need to happen within hajj and it's a certain time of year and that's that's that you do once in in your lifetime but then there's umrah which is like a more casual visit to mecca and there's uh, less rituals to do within that and you can do that as many times as you want in your lifetime and any time of year and i didn't know zakat actually had a specific percentage attached to it i thought it was just yeah. you know be charitable generally no it's a, it's a specific percentage and it's um because every human being has a different amount and ability to give so it's actually fair to say based on the amount of your saving is a 2.5% that you need to give to those who need and it's a way of of balancing out uh sort of wealth within within muslims and also to say you know you you need to give so your blessings can grow within your family and your money as well so it's a really beautiful um thing to to do what will you be reading during ramadan what should we be reading during ramadan yeah i mean other than the quran which everybody kind of goes back to and reads on the daily i wanted to recommend this book that i picked up for today's episode so it's muslim women mystics the life and work of rabia and other women mystics in islam it's interesting it's one of those books that i picked up uh, in a bookshop and now i can't remember what country i was in but those are my favorite books when i go in and i kind of just explore and find something that i'm really interested in and i've always been really fascinated by the sufi faith and um that journey of sufis and that you know their whole life is dedicated to one love and that is the love of the divine and so for them that is the ultimate you know when you uh when you've given so much time and meditation and uh love to the divine and to god that you, at sort of like towards the end of your life you become one and it's like a coming back to where you came from and it's an incredible journey to think about and you know for me in my mind i mean there is no gender to that right any human being has the capability if if you are that devoted and dedicated to this journey it it really doesn't matter what your journey is that you you would be able to do this but you know rabia of al basra from iraq rabia literally means the fourth and she is the fourth daughter of her parents and i think she lived probably about 150 years after the prophet um and she is considered one of the first female saints i just got a question is that a popular naming convention the fourth like you are the fourth child so i will call you fourth <laughs> is that is that a, is that a thing or is this is she no. unique no i think she's unique i don't think that's a thing <laughs> okay. okay good question uh, <laughs> I'm glad I was called Ahlam and not the second one. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like come on, be a bit more creative there. <laughs> But actually a lot of people a lot I know a lot of women elder women particularly who are called Rabia. Oh, probably after this lady. After her. Yeah. Oh, okay. Her. Cool. And uh you know she seems really cool in that she 
kind of um, had a very strong mind of her own and so dedicated to God and this journey. And, and so I think she was working in, in the early times of her life in her master's house and uh, she was praying. And then one night it said that she, while she was praying, there was like a, a, a divine light over her head and her master was startled by that. And the next morning he set her free. He said, okay, like you are sacred and, and you must go on your own journey. And so she takes, um, she had a donkey and she, she went into the desert and was going towards Mecca. And then, you know, her donkey uh, dies on, on the way and people come in throughout her life. This is one incident, but there are so many incidents where people, because you know, she lived in extreme poverty and people would come in and say, please accept this, like accept this money or accept this gold and we want to help you because you are important to us. Your wisdom is important to us. So please accept this. And she would refuse to take any help from anyone because she says, I only depend on the divine and on God. And for me, that was strange because for I believe that God sends help through the people around us as well and he sends help through you know situations that we stumble upon or or people so it was strange for me that she would not accept anything from anyone uh, and I feel like there is a limit between like there's a balance between accepting enough for you to survive and then accepting you know loads and and so so that for me wasn't very clear in the book and I wondered if she takes at least some you know, means of survival for herself. But, you know, some of the interesting things about her was she, you know, she chose a life of celibacy, even though she had a lot of suitors and, and people who wanted to be with her. And she would always decline and say, my one love is, is the divine. And she never slept the night. She would, she would spend the entire night in prayer and meditation. And when we talk about prayer for Rabia, it wasn't the prayer that that all Muslims do and just the five prayers of the day it was you know this form of dua and dua for us is like um your own words to God in 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 asking him for forgiveness for um you know or for for whatever that you want to get to and and there are two duas that I found really beautiful in the book and I wanted to read to you guys so one is uh, that she read and, you know, at night she would be on her rooftop and talking to God and saying, oh, my Lord, the stars are shining and the eyes of men are closed and kings have shut their doors and every lover is alone with his beloved. And here I am alone with thee. And so, you know, she was a writer as well. So there was, there's a lot of these sort of, and you, you find this in Rumi's writing, for example, that he was a, a popular Sufi as well. There's a lot of love directed to the divine. And so, and, and this other da that she said that I really found unique, that I'd never read anything like this before, where she says, oh my Lord, whatever share of this world thou dost bestow, on, bestow onto me, bestow it on thine enemies and whatever share of the next world thou dost give me give it to thy friends thou art thou art enough for me so saying to god that you know there's nothing that i want from you in this material world you know if you want to give me anything give it to my enemies and in the next world i also don't want anything from you give that to my friends and you are enough for me uh, and that level of you know, dedication to the divine is like, uh, and I know that there are people who, who get to that when they dedicate their entire life to worship and that connection uh, 
um, with with God and the divine. And and one last point I wanted to just bring up is that in this book, as well as in a lot of uh, religious books, I think we see miracle moments where, you know, uh, for example, uh, Rabia would have been a certain situation and then she heard a voice tell her such and such. And I think that's common when you read back into religious stories and books. And I, I've thought about this a lot over the years because, you know, it's not always easy to believe in miracles and, you know, did that really happen or how was it, you know, how, why did miracles never happen to us, for example, as a child? <laughs> and, and I realize now that when someone is in such a deep state of meditation that you get there, you, 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 you get clarity and you get messages and, you know, you clear your mind completely of all the, the earthly noise or material noise that, that is in there. You, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be an actual physical, literal voice in your ear. That, that is sort of comes from your contemplation and comes from the, that spiritual connection that you form, you come to re, these realizations. And so when in these books you see, you know, she heard a voice that said this and this, I now understand what that is from, you know, having some deep experiences of meditation myself or hearing others' experiences. And um, so I look forward to meditating some more during Ramadan and trying to see what voices I can hear. <laughs> regardless of whether or not you are a spiritual person mm -hmm. and because I think it's it's a spectrum you know yeah wherever you are on that I think these stories of people who go to these lengths to achieve their spiritual goal mm -hmm. are fascinating because you know it just it represents a level of dedication that I think a lot of us are unable to access and and it's the same way with like athletes as well I mean that they're, they're it's a sense, it's a sort of training, it's a dedication. Um, and to yeah. have that kind of unwavering dedication, whether that's faith or whether it's, you know, turning up at 4am in the, in the gym every day for <laughs> yeah. however many hours, I think it's just like, I, I'm in awe of anyone who is that kind of focused on one thing that they're mm -hmm. able to achieve it. Yeah. When you were talking about um, Rabia, I was reminded about this uh, the story I read the other day about these, did you, do you know about these Japanese monks? Uh, it's outlawed now, but who used to mummify themselves live? No. They're, okay. So there's this live mummification process called, I'm going to completely butcher this, but Sokushin Butsu. And there's this, this article where it, the tagline is self-discipline at its most extreme. And essentially, mm -hmm. they would bury themselves with a tube connecting to the surface. And before that, there would be kind of years of prep work in terms of the food that they would eat. So they would eat apple seeds that would contain little, little bits of cyanide. Mm -hmm. So the, the goal was that they would train their bodies to the point where gradually they would need less and less and less. And, you know, by the time that they died, they would be mummified and like if they if they got it wrong they would rot but if they got it right then they would be completely preserved and if they managed to preserve themselves that way that meant that they had transcended and become divine themselves mm. and there are actually places where you can you can go and see them They're, they've closed quite a few of them now but apparently you can go to japan and you can see these mummified um monks but they had to stop people from doing it but it's kind of that sense of that was that was what they cared about they wanted to 
transcend. Yeah. They wanted to get to this level and that was how they did it. Mm, years of dedication. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. What things do you think people are going to look back on that we do now that people will go, and they did what? I think, I think spending 24 seven on with technology. Yeah. <laughs> that is like the, the most insane thing about our lifetime, I think. Yeah, that is quite insane to be fair. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like offices, I feel like the way we work will be completely yeah. different in the future. Because I think we will be embracing technology to the point where it is it is seamless. So it's like beyond Zoom meetings. So maybe we'll yes. have like holograms. Yeah. Flexible working, I think, will look completely different. Well, it won't be flexible working. It will just be working. I think that they'll look back at the kind of Mad Men days of the nine to five mm -hmm. with complete yeah. like, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, even now you look back on things that, you know, our parents' generation did. And it's hilarious. People, people who did my job a number of years ago would send a fax out and then mm. they would go for lunch for six hours because nothing else was going to happen that day anyway. <laughs> yeah, you had to wait. That's true. But it's just becoming more and more difficult to disconnect from the material world or the technological world, which is a part of the material and this crazy cyberspace, like, you know, the, the whole thing about uh, what these, you know, uh, in Japan, you know, the, the, the sort of mummifying themselves or, or these spiritual mystics is the complete dis detachment from the material world and this world that we're in and, you know, putting a, a, a sort of goal that is outside of all of this. And it's just becoming harder and harder as these technological mm. advancements take over all of our spaces, wherever we are at any given point in time. I feel though that there should be a sort of disclaimer that we say here where we're not advocating that to switch off people mummify themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe switch <laughs> off Outlook yeah. for a few hours, um, <laughs> but not like your body that don't you yeah. Oh, I'd love funny. to hear, um, and I'd love to hear what you guys, what books you guys have chosen for this episode. But before we do, I just want to say, I hope that they don't find a technological way to contact me in the afterlife as well, because once I'm oh, gone, <laughs> I don't want to be connected there either. I, know. It, I mean, in a way you look forward, you think, oh, it'd be nice to rest for a while. <laughs> yeah. There is a show about this that's brilliant, which I will recommend if you haven't watched it already. It's called Upload. And it's I've a seen it. it's really good. Oh, it's really good. Yeah. It's like, what if you could upload yourself to the afterlife? And one of the best things about it, which is kind of terrifying, you can see it happening, is that obviously if you have the money to spend, you can end up somewhere really nice. But there's in-app purchases even in the afterlife. So if you want the good <laughs> stuff, you still have to pay for it when you're dead. Oh god. Yeah. Oh, like a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So what did you guys choose for your Ramadan reads? So I've got I've I've gone with a more physical parts of Ramadan. So uh, we've talked about the spiritual. I've gone with the, the, the actual fasting aspect of it. So I bring you two for one today. I've got, um, my author is Dr. Will Cole, who's a chiropractor and a practitioner of functional medicine. And I, I went and got one of the books to talk about, but then after I got the book, I went online to look into sort of just get some information about this guy and according to Gwyneth Paltrow 
he is one of the smartest experts she knows in this space, which obviously sets up all the alarm bells. <laughs> so <laughs> I've never heard of functional medicine. So I did a deep dive on Google on uh, functional medicine and on Dr. Will Cole. And I'm not going to go into lots of detail, but I would say that you should probably treat his medical advice a bit like you would like your aunt who's ordered a herbal tea off the internet that will 100% increase your bio-oxytocinogenicines, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> or, or an egg that's meant to be placed in suspicious areas. Yes. <laughs> so that's Dr. Will. So the books um, tie into the very practical aspects of Ramadan, which is, you know, fasting during daylight hours. So it's effectively an inversion of intermittent fastings that, that people do. So mm -hmm. Dr. Will Cole has written a book called Intuitive Fasting, which is about intermittent fasting, but it's um, with a, with a, flavor of actually listening more to your body and doing things that make you feel better because i think a lot of people during ramadan a lot of my friends during ramadan talk about how they put on weight which is quite counterintuitive but it's mm -hmm. because uh, i mean the iftars and the suhoors here if you go to a, like a corporate iftar it's so insane loud. right mm -hmm. the spread is just out of this world and then you have all these juices that are really sweet um, yeah. so you've got a bit of a blood sugar roller coaster. Um, so it kind of fits to say, you know, just eat things that make you feel better and listen to your body. And that brings me on to the book that I've actually got here, which is called Ketotarian. So he, in the intuitive fasting book, he says, you know, this is the kind of stuff you should be eating to stabilize your blood sugar and just feel more um i guess steady through the day even if you mm. are fasting yeah. um so I, I don't know if you can see this i've got so many notes here because i found this book a little bit triggering it says here warning um and the warning i put in here is um because he's got he's got all these things that you know to look out for if you pick up the diet book because they usually mean that it's a complete, um, you know, when people try to fluster you with science and technical terms, you know that it's nothing good. So the result of the beta oxidation is a molecule called acetyl COA and as more fatty acids are released and metabolized, blah, 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 cells rise, process, blah, 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 feedback loop. So, so that kind of upset me a little bit. But if you just skip past all the pseudoscience and you get to little recipes of things that are actually quite nice, like chia pudding breakfast bowl, completely agree mm. that this is stuff that's good for you. There are no, there are no um, bad carbohydrates. So when I say bad, it's, you know, the sugar and refined flour and so on which yeah. we all know it's really bad for us. And he's saying, you know, a lot of vegetarians and vegans think that they are eating healthily, but really what they're doing mostly is eating carbs, which sends your blood sugars on a, um, a bit of a uh, roller coaster again, which isn't great. So if you take this book, 
and you start on page 146 and just skip all the pseudoscience, then you've got a nice recipe book with <laughs> lovely things that you can eat that are good for you and that will make you feel good as well. Mm. Um, so I think the connection to Ramadan is just to, instead of maybe going for the big spreads, I, I know a lot of people love these Ramadan juices and the dates mm -hmm. that you get at the start of the, at the start of the niftar. Yeah. Like that's not necessarily the things that are going to make you feel good when you're doing this. And if you True. Um, try to see it as a, an intermittent fasting, fasting journey, mm -hmm. and you choose things that will just um, minimize those peaks and troughs, yeah. then this could actually be a really good thing for you, not just spiritually, but also physically. Yeah. And also a good way to, you know, because when you're fasting, you're also super hungry and suddenly every single craving under the sun will, will rise. And you, so it's a really good practice actually to follow a, a cookbook in that time, which, you know, or a couple that you select and you kind of know that are going to be safe for you in that time and then make whatever you want within those, that framework. And there's really good alternatives now. I mean, natural sugar substitutes and like honey, you know, I use honey more. Um, yeah. He does talk about, he does talk about the sugar substitutes and honey is one of the ones that he's saying that's one of the best ones. Coconut sugar, I think is a, is a really good one as well. Yeah. And stevia. Stevia. Stevia yeah. is like the only, I guess, mm -hmm. one of the substitutes that he's really advocating yeah um, but again you know go look up the real science do not trust dr <laughs> will cole because he's not an actual doctor i mean he's a doctor he's a chiropractor he's a doctor like ross and friends is a doctor yes <laughs> yes he can poke like he can pop your bones into place because he's a chiropractor said but... that it has made me sit up straighter just just <laughs> hearing his name yes yes so yeah, that's, I'm going to have to adjust this for the rest of the episode now. There we go. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so we that was, um, go on. No, no, carry on what you were saying. Yeah. I was just going to say that was my book. I'd like to know what you've got for us, Annabelle. Okay, so I think everyone can benefit from uh, Breath by James Nestor. You know, whether you're observing the month of Ramadan or not, we all breathe. And according to James Nestor, we could all be doing it more efficiently. How so? I shall return to this shortly. So the book is called Breath. The subtitle is The New Science of a Lost Art. And it was a Sunday Times bestseller, New York Times bestseller. I think it came out last year. And it was one of those books where various newspapers said, you know, best book of 2020. And it's been translated, I think, by this year into 30 different languages. So hugely popular. What I'll say before I go any further is that, so James is not a doctor. Um, he is a science journalist. The book is the result of 10 years of him interviewing researchers and doctors who are specialists in various aspects of breathing. It, it's taken him a long time to put this together. And at various points throughout the book, he says, I'm not a doctor. Th these are case studies. I'm, it's, it's a brilliant kind of narrative uh, way of describing the history of the science and experiments that have been done about breathing and then what we could possibly learn from it. There are breathing exercises at the end of the book as well with specific instructions on what to do if you are worried about this, this and this. So if you want to breathe to ease anxiety, for example. 
is the the breathing techniques that he recommends is it kind of effectively yoga breathing or is it different breath styles for different times there's examples on different methods of breathing yoga practice does form a big part of this book as well and he talks in detail about you know specific people that he's spoken to um there's also some fascinating examples of athletes that i wanted to bring up as well so a big part of what he says is i think we're fed this idea that more oxygen is better and that's not necessarily true there's a there's a big focus on slower breathing um, being more efficient with the air that you breathe rather than just breathing lots and lots and lots. There was a Czechoslovakian runner called Emil Zatopek who basically managed a shoe factory or worked in a shoe factory and he was never interested in running and one day he was entered into this race just because and he came second out of 100 and he was like okay I might actually be quite good at this but his training method from then on was completely mocked um, by everyone kind of in the sporting profession. This was like in the 40s and 50s. What he used to do was he used to run as fast as he could, as hard as he could, uh, without breathing. So hypoventilation training. And even though everyone mocked him for it, he still ended up winning the gold medal in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters at the 1952 Olympics. And then years later in the 70s, the U.S., uh, Olympic swim team set world records in 11 events. They won 13 gold medals by using this technique of not breathing quite as much when they were swimming. So it, the swim coach basically said this was an effort to get his swimmers to use oxygen more efficiently. So they would take two or three strokes before lifting their head to breathe. And it was the greatest performance by a US Olympic swim team in history. So he sets the scene with these kind of stories but what on earth does you know athletic performance have to do with say the three of us or anyone listening who's not planning on winning any gold medals anytime soon how can it help us in our daily life slow breathing goes by another name um he says in breath he says it goes by the name of prayer mm. and this is absolutely fascinating when buddhist monks chant their most popular mantra each spoken phrase lasts six seconds, with six seconds to inhale before the chant starts again. The traditional chant of Om, the sacred sound of the universe used in Jainism and other traditions, takes six seconds to sing, with a pause of about six seconds to inhale. The Satanama chant, one of the best known techniques in Kundalini Yoga, also takes, can you guess? Thanks. Six seconds to vocalize, followed by six seconds to inhale. I just had an amazing realization. There's actually some words in the Quran that are also prolonged in that way when they're announced. I never realized that before. How interesting. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Can you is there anything that you can practice now that we can time? Yeah, <laughs> On the spot. So, Alif, Lam, what was that? Two, three, two, three seconds. Should we, should we time it? I've got my timer. <laughs> well, well, probably our Islamic teacher would have done it a, longer than I'm doing it. <laughs> but that's like a part of a Quran where it is prolonged. And now I'm thinking there must be some relation. Basically, it says here, um, well, I wanted to ask you because he actually doesn't mention Islam. Um, he mm. mentions uh, Japanese, African, Hawaiian, Native American, Buddhist, Taoist, Christian, these cultures and religions all had somehow developed the same prayer techniques requiring mm. the same breathing patterns, and they all likely benefited from the same calming effect. 
And then there was a specific uh, research that was done. They said here at the University of Pavia in Italy, they were measuring blood flow, heart rate, and nervous system feedback and had them recite a Buddhist mantra, as well as the original Latin version of the rosary, the Catholic prayer cycle of the Ave Maria, which is repeated half by a priest and half by the congregation. And they were stunned to find that the average number of breaths for each cycle was almost exactly identical. So in conclusion, it turned out that the most efficient breathing rhythm, and you can use this in your own life, occurred when both the length of respirations and total breaths per minute were locked into a spooky symmetry. 5.5 second inhales, followed by 5.2 second exhale, which works out at almost exactly to 5.5 breaths a minute. This was the same pattern as the rosary. Mm, that is so fascinating. I'm going to look into this with the Quran because definitely when you see here, like um, those who are you know professional reciters of the Quran, they definitely hold their breath for long when because you're not supposed to pause in, in each ayah or the line of, of mm. certain uh, Quran, Quran verses until you reach like the, the point, the sukun that tells you you pause here. Mm hmm. Um, so I'm going to look into that, actually. That's really interesting. I never thought about um, that side of the pronunciation. I was listening to this on audiobook, and I remember, like, of all the interesting facts, I mean, I've talked about those fascinating things about athletes. I had to go and look those up. The bit that I remembered after I finished listening was the idea that these practices could have evolved independently even and still reached the same conclusion about what makes us feel good yeah. he says and and i this particularly i wanted to mention because i know ramadan is a month of like it's a, it's a spiritual month and i think that that month can possibly be uncomfortable for people who don't know how to be mindful in a spiritual way or they find it uncomfortable to to kind of participate in in a in a in a group setting he says, in many ways, this resonant breathing offered the same benefits as meditation for people who didn't want to meditate or yoga for people who didn't like to get off the couch. It offered the healing touch of prayer for people who weren't religious. So that is why I want to recommend this book during this month, because breathing connects us all. And apparently in a more spiritual sense than I ever even realized. Amazing. I wish my brother-in-law was here because he, he's been into shamanic breathwork recently and he keeps telling me about the power of what it's done for him and this meditative state that he goes into and the power of doing it in a group all together. And there's just so many commonalities, like you say, Annabelle, in, in like they may have reached these conclusions independently, but there's just so much that connects, you know, all of what we do to get to that meditative state. But if you're looking for something good that you can do uh, today, there's if you want to skip straight to the back and you want something actively new, how, how do I start breathing properly? Get the book, read through it. But at the back, there's a whole thing about, you know, specific exercises that you can do. But a key thing that you can start doing today is, you know, breathing through your nose, breathe through your nose. <laughs> In for six, out for six. Uh, 5.5. Uh, but he says that within that range is fine. So, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I feel like I've learned so much today. Me too. <laughs> yeah, likewise. I'm going to be, I'm going to be sitting up straight and breathing properly for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, just yeah. yeah. One more disclaimer that I am recommending that you read the book and you look more into it. And I'm not a doctor. And James Nestor <laughs> is not a doctor. He's a science journalist. 
This guy, not a doctor. <laughs> so enough about meditation and breathing from a bookworm. How about we speak to an actual Buddhist monk about his thoughts on how meditation can help during the month of Ramadan. Buddhist monk, meditation teacher, Sunday Times best-selling author Gelong Tubton is here with us now. Welcome, Tubton. Thank you. Welcome, welcome to you too. You came to the Emirates Literature Festival in 2020, which was wonderful. Now I believe you'll have a new book out in March next year called Han Book for Hard Times, A Monk's Guide to Fearless Living. My research tells me that this is a practical book complete with meditations and is intended to be a valuable resource to anyone during times of struggle, whether that's an ongoing struggle or perhaps a struggle to find equilibrium when you are really rather hot and hangry, which is not an uncommon feeling for people fasting for <laughs> Ramadan. <laughs> yes, my, my book is all about how to deal with challenging situations. And I mean, I think we'd all agree that life at the moment is extremely challenging so there's a lot of material i've be, i've i'm doing field work by being in lockdown <laughs> yeah definitely yeah it's it's perfect for now so diving straight in uh, tell us what what can you do when your senses threaten to overwhelm you well i think meditation training is something that can be integrated into your daily life. So you can do um, 10 or 15 minutes of meditation every morning. That's something that you can just weave into your, your daily schedule. But what I also find really helpful is to add to that um, the practice of tiny moments of mindfulness many times a day, wherever you are, so that you're just getting used to going into your present moment um, feeling the ground under your feet, uh, washing your hands with awareness, be, being you know, in the moment um, in small, small doses throughout the day. And what this does is it prepares you for difficulties. Because when you're overwhelmed and when things are really crashing around you, it's very hard to just switch on the mindfulness in that moment unless you've done some preparation. So I think maintaining a daily practice helps you be ready for the hard times so these moments do you mean like when you're brushing your teeth or kind of sat in traffic and stuff like that yeah yeah i think it's quite good to connect it to simple daily actions washing your hands brushing your teeth cooking sitting in traffic these times when normally we're just on autopilot mm -hmm. um, we could become extremely present and then those moments become mindful moments. And it just means you're training yourself to, to be present and to be happy. I think this is, this is really connected to um, discovering that happiness is always available to you in the moment if you can learn to just be present and let go of all the judgment and all the kind of mental chatter and just be in the moment um, regularly throughout the day. And is that Tupton like blocking out thoughts or how do you control? Because I mean, our thoughts are the most powerful things ever, right? Sometimes you're just sitting there and you find yourself completely consumed by something. You're like, how did I even get there? Yeah. So how do you, how do you treat your thoughts? I mean, are you meant to block them? How do you, how do you deal with them? Yeah. So I think it's not about blocking or removing, but it's about changing the focus. 
you know, if, if you try to block out your thoughts, that becomes quite harsh. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always trying, if we're always trying to just remove our thoughts and go into a kind of empty blank state, mm-hmm. I think that's impossible and very difficult. But what we really want to do is change the dynamic, change our relationship with our thoughts, because we have quite a complex relationship with our own thoughts. Sometimes we are the boss and sometimes they are the boss. And mm-hmm. when we are bossed around by our own thoughts and emotions, that leads to trouble. Mm-hmm. So changing the relationship means learning to maybe have more of an objectivity, stepping back and seeing, oh, here I am thinking about that again. It's like you're, you are observing, you are the thinker observing the thought. Mm-hmm. And then you can start to make changes because you can be less sort of wrapped up in the thoughts. Yeah. I was interested to know kind of how this being in, being in the present moment and not blocking or blocking all your thoughts worked when, you know, your, your present is one where you're quite uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. in Ramadan in particular, say you're fasting and you're nearing the end of your fast and all you can think about is, you know, your present. So I am so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. How do you deal with that if your present is uncomfortable? That's a great example. And I've done a lot of fasting practice myself at the monastery. Um, and I think there are two key benefits or two key areas we can work on with fasting. And they are compassion for oneself and compassion for others. Mm -hmm. And so to unpack that a bit, um, as you say, when you're fasting, you feel uncomfortable, you feel hungry, you feel thirsty, your mind is just full full of visualizations of pizza and things like that. You know, you're really (laughs) thinking about food and and it's physically and emotionally challenging. Um, But, one key component of mindfulness is to be in the present moment without trying to change it, Mm -hmm. without judging, without saying this is bad. It's almost like you're relaxing into that discomfort and meeting it with an open heart. Mm -hmm. So the reason why this relates to having compassion is because you're learning to embrace or, or love or accept yourself when you feel um, uncomfortable. So you're learning how to not let the discomfort hurt you, but instead you're making friends with it. And so using fasting, and obviously fasting, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing and people should be careful medically and you know, only fast if it's safe for you. But uh, using fasting as a way of developing that resilience, that mm-hmm. ability to meet discomfort with a compassionate heart, I think that's a brilliant opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is compassion for others. So in, in, in our monastery, when we do fasting, we do a lot of prayers for those who are hungry. So yeah. while, while we're fasting, we're thinking about all the people in the world who uh, haven't got enough to eat or drink. Mm-hmm. And because you can feel it yourself, your empathy levels are stronger. You know how it feels. Obviously, you're on a controlled fast. It's only for a certain amount of hours. But at least you, you, you can connect with how it feels to be hungry. And that can help yeah. you to pray for those who are hungry and think about ways you could use your life for the alleviation of suffering of others. So I think it can be quite revealing. You know, fasting can help you go deeper into a sense of compassion 
Absolutely. And and Tupton, you were at the Lit Fest last year and we had an amazing panel, an interfaith panel, um, where where you know it, it's it's really revealing in those moments how much commonality there are in, in the different faiths and you know meeting uh, in the middle um, with with the with with different religions. And I wanted to ask you, have you know what 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 is your personal experience been with fasting? Have you ever tried fasting the Muslim way uh, like we do in Ramadan? Well, I'm part of a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we have some fasting practices, mm -hmm. which I did quite a lot of in my early years as a monk, where you are fasting every alternate day. Okay. Um, so no solids or liquids. And also you're in silence. And what you're doing during that time is compassion meditations and compassion prayers. And it's quite harsh because mm -hmm. there's an entire day with no food or drink. Um, so so you, you on the first day, you have breakfast and lunch, mm -hmm. and then you have nothing in the evening. And on the second day, no food or liquid or speaking. And then you break the fast on the third day. And you alternate like that, sometimes for months on end. Wow. And it's quite, it's a bit of an extreme practice, but I definitely tried to work on those two aspects I mentioned, the, the building resilience uh, in the face of discomfort and also thinking of others who are suffering. Yeah. Um, actually, also, it's quite pleasant sometimes because when you're meditating and you're not eating, I do find it increases clarity. Your meditation mm. is less. You know, when you try and meditate after a heavy meal, you just want to go to sleep. Yeah. If there's no food in you, then, <laughs> you know, you, and I have to be careful here because I don't want people to run off and damage themselves by, you know, fasting too much. I think you have to do it carefully and under supervision, but it can yeah. be, it can be very useful. And, and, and what is your, I mean, I completely agree that, you know, in, in that state of fasting and when you take away you know food is food is a form of distraction as well um, so when you take that away from your day you suddenly have that much more time and your focus is on all those other things which is not not food and food is that break that stops us during our day you know I need a cup of coffee or I need food or I need a breakfast or lunch so when that's removed you do have a lot more space for other things. And um, I wanted to ask you, what was your deepest state of meditation that um, you've ever experienced? And, and how can you talk to us a little bit about that experience? Uh, in, in meditation training, we, we don't really look for deep states or, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people talk about like higher levels of consciousness or mm -hmm. breakthroughs and things like that. Actually, we don't look for that kind of stuff. And it's more just the daily practice of being with the mind. And um, I've done a lot of retreats where you're in silence and you're alone and sometimes fasting as well. And so that can be challenging because you are just thrown into a corner with your own thoughts and emotions and you're learning how to work with that. Yeah. So I've never experienced sort of, you know, special states of consciousness. It's more just over the years I've learned and I'm still learning how to be um, more connected to my practice, more connected to the meditation and letting it become part of my daily routine. Mm -hmm. 
we we want obviously everyone to go away and and buy your book when it comes out later and also amongst guide to happiness is uh currently available as well but i just wondered if there was anything specifically for the month of ramadan a kind of mindfulness or meditation exercise that you particularly would recommend maybe beyond just incorporating it into those little moments throughout the day like is there anything specific for the month of ramadan that you think would be especially helpful to bear in mind well i definitely think um incorporating prayer really helps and when we pray obviously all the major spiritual traditions have different ways of praying um but there's one thing in common is is i think we can all spend some more time praying for others with a sense of universal compassion. Mm -hmm. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings, without exception, have happiness. So I think we could use a retreat or Ramadan or these, you know, these special spiritual um, uh, times, we could use them to deepen our sense of compassion. So I would suggest waking up each morning and praying for others, going to sleep at night, praying for others, just to take us a little bit away from the self-centered um, mm. thinking that we, we so easily get wrapped up in and which is so heavily promoted by our culture. These days, modern culture is so much about the self, the individual. Um, I think we, can, we could use Ramadan to break away from those chains of egotism and be more spiritual and compassionate in our thinking. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Tuft. And I, I'm definitely going to use that as a focus and spread that message for sure. That's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tupton. We can't wait to read your new book. And if you could please remind us when it's going to be coming out. It's called Handbook for Hard Times, and it's coming out in March next year. Fantastic. We look forward to reading it. It's been such a pleasure talking to you again. Thanks for everyone listening, for tuning in. Next time, we'll be talking about the best supporting characters in fiction. Do you have a secondary character you think deserves a plot of their own? Let us know on social media or email us on comms at emerslitfest.com. Until next time, take care and Ramadan Kareem.